Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, December 1st, 2019, we begin a new mini-series titled Christmas Revealed. Today's sermon, From Genesis to Jesus, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Enjoy. This morning marks the beginning of our Advent series. Uh, Advent is a big word meaning arrival. It's actually a smaller word meaning something bigger. Advent means arrival. It also marks the arrival of a lot of things in our decorations, a lot of arrival in our wardrobe. Uh, I wear vests this time of year only. Um, Many of us put trees inside of our home this time of year. We take lights and put the lights outside. We attend parties for our kids classrooms, we attend parties for our small groups, we drink disgusting egg milk, we eat a lot of cookies, and attend even more unnecessary parties. Uh, So Merry Christmas, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time of year, but why all the celebration? Is it, is the reason that much cause for celebration? Why are we celebrating? We're celebrating the arrival of someone, not just something important. We're celebrating the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God. This year for our Advent series, we're gonna be talking about Christmas Revealed, revealing the true meaning of Christmas and talking about why it is so important for all of us today. Again, we're in Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. You may have already opened it and realized it's just a bunch of names. Uh, I'm sure some of you had that initial reaction. You were like, really? This is what we're doing today, a list of a, a a bunch of names. Um, That is what we're doing today. I know typically we'd encounter a text such as this where so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and we look for the last begat and then pick up from there because that's what we seem to think is important. But this morning I'd encourage you to not just write it off because it's a bunch of names. The fact of the matter is that Jesus, God, wrote it in for a very specific reason and I hope to uncover that reason for us this morning. So we are going to read it. Um, be gracious with me. None of these people are, uh, have the names of anyone in my family nor any of my friends. Um, if it's your name, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just saying it's difficult and hard to pronounce. Uh, Matthew chapter one, verse one through 17 says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now maybe you know some of these names. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now maybe some of these names you're beginning to remember and recall from the Old Testament. Some of the names I'm sure you're wondering who in the world is that. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jechaniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You're still with me. You're still catching some names you're picking up on and a lot of names that are new to you. 
Um, if you're looking to name a puppy, I'd recommend one of these. Um, <laughs> number 12, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechaniah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray for us one more time and then we'll hop into the text this morning. God, though it's my voice that's been heard, we know it's your word that's been spoken. Um, And God, this morning we view every word as important. God, we ask that as we look through the family tree, the genealogy, the heritage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God, that these words would jump off, off, jump off of the page to us, God, that we would learn something maybe we haven't known before, but God, that it wouldn't just be knowledge and things that we know, it would be things that we know that would cause us to do the things you've asked us to do. God, would you be with us this morning? Would you open our ears to hear you, open our eyes to see you, our minds to know you, and our hearts to love you? And as a result, would you open our mouths to worship you for who this passage says that you are. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You're gonna see three points in your outline this morning. Those are three main points to lead us through this genealogy. We are gonna call it a genealogy, a family tree, a heritage, an ancestry, whatever you'd like to call it. That's what we can call it. This morning and at the end, I'll close with three encouragements relevant to us during the Christmas season. Now typically, as I said before, if you were like most Christians, you'd encounter a long list like this of a bunch of names, you'd fast forward to where it ends and pick it up from there. Who's guilty? I'm guilty. I'll raise two hands and a foot because that's typically what I do when I see this type of passage. In fact, Pastor Bob asked me if I'd teach this passage and I looked at this passage and I said, what? (laughs) Sure, and here we are. (laughs) uh, And it's wonderful. It is wonderful, 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 all of the beautiful things inside of this family tree. As I said, three main points to lead us through. The first main point is the purpose of the genealogy. Why would something like this even be included in the scriptures? Now, back when this gospel was written, genealogies were very important, especially to this culture. The Jews, the Israelites, who was Matthew's primary audience, they would have read through this list and they would have known a lot of these names. Now, a lot of them are foreign to us and we don't recall the story and we're not quite sure what happened with so-and-so and so-and-so, but to the Jews, they would read this and understand the rich, rich history and they'd understand the claims that Matthew seems to be making about Jesus Christ. In fact, that's where we're gonna start. In Matthew chapter one, verse one, there's four things that reveal to us the purpose of this genealogy. Matthew chapter one, verse one says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Four things, the first thing is this, the book of the genealogy. Uh, In Greek right there, genealogy is actually Genesis, which is pretty neat, because we just got done studying Genesis, right? We looked at the beginning of everything, and now we're gonna trace back and look at the beginning of Jesus. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, as you and I have um, a last name. We actually did get a puppy this weekend, and we named her Pepper. 
Glitter Sparkles, Slager. Uh, So Slager is her last name, but for Jesus, Christ was not a name, it was a title. It means Messiah. It's Jesus the Messiah. Matthew is calling him something very specific. See, all of these other names that follow, this family history, this heritage, this genealogy that he traces out all points to Jesus as being the Christ. And that's the claim he makes right up front is that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that we see promised throughout the Old Testament. The third thing we see in the first verse is that Jesus is called the son of David. Jesus is called this 17 times over the course of the New Testament. It's not just a term of familial relation, but it's also a messianic title. It's a title reserved for the Messiah himself, and that is who Matthew claims Jesus to be, that he is the Messiah, the one who's to come to save the people from their sins. Now, if you look at verse six in Matthew chapter one, we notice a specific detail about David. Matthew says, and Jesse, the father of David the king. We don't want to miss this. It's not just any David. This is David the king. Now again, we think back of the original audience, the people that Matthew wrote to. They're Jews. They understand Israelite history and they know who David the king is. David is a big deal. If you rewind with me, think through Genesis. We talked about this thing called covenants. Right, how God made promises with his people and this is the primary way he related with people in the Old Testament. Well, there was an Abrahamic covenant. There were several of these different covenants. There's also a Davidic covenant. And within this Davidic covenant, we see the promise of a coming son, which is why Matthew would point to Jesus as the son of David. Up on the screen, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, they say this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Now notice all the I wills. This is God saying, I am going to do this. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. This will be one of David's ancestors. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, no king reigns forever, so this is a bold claim. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, he kind of transitions out of talking about Jesus and also talking about David's son, Solomon. He says, when he commits iniquity, we know that Jesus never committed iniquity, that's sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, the focus is back on Jesus. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now there's some key words in this promise that God makes to King David. He talks about a house. Well, that's a dynasty, a family from the line of King David. He talks about a kingdom, people governed by a king. He talks about a throne, the authority and rule of said king. And he says forever. It'll be the eternal nature of this king's rule. He will rule Forever, the promise is the king will come from the line of David who's going to rule forever. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. It's not in your notes, it's not on the screens. I'm sorry, you can go ahead and write it down if you'd like to. Isaiah nine, six through seven, speaking about this promise made to David, says this, for unto us a child is born. We just sang about this, do you remember? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All of the Jews, all of the Israelites understood this as being a culmination of this Davidic covenant that God made to King David. Now, right out of the gates, Matthew says, he's the fulfillment of that covenant. We're not just talking about some ordinary guy named Jesus. We're talking about Jesus the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was promised to come to King David. The fourth person he mentions, he says, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Now he's also called the son of Abraham. He turns the clock even further back so we rewind and think of what we learned about Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. It's up on the screen for us this morning. It says this, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we talked about this promise in three different terms. We talked about land. That part of this promise had to do with God giving Abraham land. The second part of the promise had to do with family. We learned that Abraham's descendants would be like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. The third part of the promise had to do with blessing. And that third part was a threefold promise. God said, I will bless you. You will be a blessing to other people. And through your line, all people will be blessed. Now it's through that third part of that third promise, through him all people would be blessed. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant even there. And calling Jesus the son of Abraham, he states that Jesus is the culmination of this promise. So the purpose of the genealogy is this. He points to Jesus to be the Christ and then validates it by backing up the entire family history. He says the record is there, the history is there, Jesus is who I said he is, and he has come from the family whom God had promised. He comes through King David. He comes from Abraham, just as God had said. So what's the purpose of the genealogy? It's to point to Jesus as a historical figure who is, in fact, the Christ. The second thing in your outline is the plan of God revealed. The plan of God revealed. Now again, as we would read through this genealogy, we would remember these promises that God made, these prophecies that God had foretold, and we'd see them coming true in the person of Jesus. Now let's rewind all the way back. Genesis chapter three, remember creation. We studied Genesis. God makes everything, everything's perfect, and then Adam and Eve mess it up. All right, there's this whole, hey, if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. Satan tempts them. They say, yeah, we wanna be like God too. As a result of that, God curses them, but he also makes a promise. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, this is the curse he places on the serpent, but also the promise he foretells. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we're already talking about the future coming of a child on the third page of our Bible. Someone is coming. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. Okay, so um, Satan the serpent is gonna bruise this future, future offspring's heel, but the offspring will actually bruise his head, okay? It's the difference of a chihuahua-like little ankle biter and a Rottweiler mauling your face, right? These are, these are two different things. He's saying this future son wins, right? You've bruised his heel for now. You feel like you've won for now, but a day will come when someone will come and crush the snake. It's a promise made, on the third page of our Bible, the foretelling of a son, the foretelling of a king, the foretelling of a conqueror. We look through the Old Testament and we see more about the birth and the promise of the snake crusher, the Abrahamic covenant. Through him, all families will be blessed. Through the Davidic covenant, a house, a kingdom, a throne forever. During the reign of the Old Testament kings, God would send prophets to speak to his people and he didn't just tell them wait, he also told them watch. We're not just waiting for this king, we're actually watching for him and predicted the details about his birth. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, up on the screen. It says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Now, I'm not sure where you're at with your anatomy lessons and biology and everything else, but essentially virgins aren't capable of just giving birth um, on their own. So this would be a sign to watch for. And he's predicting this. He's saying this baby is gonna come through a virgin. It's going to be an act of God. In fact, if we look at Matthew chapter one, verse 16, go ahead and look back at Matthew with me real quick. Uh, Look at the way this reads. It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. In the Greek, if we're gonna nerd out more on Greek stuff this morning, that was born is is what's known as a divine passive. And what that means is it's not an active, it's not an act of any individual, it's a passive action done to them by God himself. In other words, we're talking about act of God. So Matthew's saying this was predicted in the Old Testament that someone, a virgin, would give birth. And here Matthew is saying that virgin is Mary. Micah chapter five, verse two, where it's not just um, who he's born to, but it's also where he's born that's predicted. Matthew five, verse two says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So even though your village is too small to be considered one of the great villages, out of you is going to be a ruler who will rule them all. He's coming forth is from old, not just he's, he, one he's known about in the Old Testament. This is one, what's been predicted all along, but he's also old from ancient of days, like old as in he's God, he's eternal. It's been predicted the son would come from a virgin, a virgin, and the son would come from Bethlehem. Now this genealogy reveals the plan, but it also reveals another side of that plan, that the plan of God often takes time. Okay, we have a promise made for us on the, on the third page of our Bible that a child was coming who would crush the snake. 2,000 years before Christ was born, a promise is made to Abraham. Through you, all families will be blessed. 1,000 years before Christ was born, a promise was made to David. Through your line, there will be a king who reigns forever. These are the promises that God made, but we see it takes him a long time to work out the plan. 
I don't know if you ever feel like this with God, but maybe you're just sitting in the mess of your life and you're looking at your watch like, all right, God, like when are you gonna show up here? Like you promised me you work all things to the good for those who love you have been called according to your purposes. Well, Jesus, I'm pretty sure I love you and I'm pretty sure I've been called according to your purposes, but maybe my watch beats faster than yours or, or what's going on up there that's got you delayed. But here we see thousands of years it takes God to work out this plan. There's this verse in 2 Peter, verse, chapter three, verse eight and nine says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is operating on a different uh, timepiece than we are. Okay, we see right here, right now, we see the situation that we are working through right now. God sees everything for all time and is masterfully putting it all together in such a way that it works for his glory and for our good. And what we see from this genealogy is that his plan can take time. The third thing we see from the genealogy this morning is the people of Jesus's family. The people of Jesus's family. We have to remember this is not just some list. This is his family. This is the family that Jesus comes from. It's a list full of people we wouldn't choose to highlight in our own story who experience things we would not want to experience. And like all families, there are probably members and moments we would also like to forget. Think about your Christmas card for a second. Do you put like the reality of life on your Christmas card for people? Right? You put your ideal self out there, not your real self. We talk about all the great things that our kids have done this year, but we forgot to mention how little Johnny blew the state championship game. We talk about little Sally's educational achievements, but we don't talk about how she's trying to set a record for speeding tickets. We talk about the good stuff. We put our best foot forward. If you do what, I, what we've done, and we don't send stuff out anymore, we just Facebook it because it's cheaper and easier, right? Um, we just we put our best face forward. Right? We get a good photo, photo and say, hey, everyone's happy this year. Again. But we're not real about it. But when we look at Jesus' family, it's not an ideal family, it's just a real family. Matthew's gospel, he gets real, he shares the real people, he doesn't cover anything up. If I were to analyze each and every one of these family members, they're full of good kings and bad kings, Jews, Gentiles, patriarchs, prostitutes, murderers, manipulators. Matthew just tells it how it is. There is no sugarcoating this family. Typically, we would, uh, in a Jewish culture, it's a patriarchal society, so we would track our family ancestry through, a, through, through men. But what we see here is Matthew actually calls forward to the front of our focus five different women. The fifth one is the Virgin Mary that Pastor Bob's gonna talk about, uh, I believe, in a couple weeks, so I'll leave, I'll leave that for him. But I wanna mention four of the women he talks about in this text. He talks about Tamar. Tamar, in verse three, she's one of the relatives uh, of Jesus' family. Uh, maybe you recall the story in Genesis chapter 38 where she dressed like a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. Um, this is Judah who believes this woman to just be a prostitute. Turns out it's actually his own daughter-in-law, yet even still, 
this is Jesus' family. Not perfect, not ideal, just real. We learn about Rahab here in verse four. We learn about Rahab in the book of Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, a city that the Israelites would conquer. Yet she was used by God to hide some spies in her room and then delivered because of the faith that she had. She's not a good candidate to be a hero of our faith, but we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and she's commended for the faith she had in God. Not an ideal person, just a real person. We see Ruth in verse five. Ruth came from a family of Moabites. Deuteronomy 23 verse three said, no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. She's not even allowed in the family because of her ancestry. Yet still we see through a line of events that God calls her to himself and invites her into the family. You look at Bathsheba in verse six, not even mentioned by name. It says this in verse six, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, so not even trying to cover that one up at all. He's just saying, you remember this story. You remember this story, that time when David went out walking on his roof because he's the king and had a view and everything else. And he's looking around and what's he see? He sees a woman bathing. He likes what he sees, so inquires about who this woman is and says, who's that woman? And one of his servants says, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, bad idea, bro. But he goes with it and says, bring her here, I want her. So he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and through a chain of events has her husband killed. So we have adultery, we have murder. Yet still, this is Jesus' family. It's not an ideal family. It's just a real family. These family trees aren't meant to just be skipped over through them. We see purpose, we see a plan and we learn about who these people really were. It's from these three things, the purpose, the plan, the people, I wanna leave us with three encouragements um, during this Christmas season. The first encouragement is this, that God moves in the messiness of life. That God moves in the messiness of life. There's no doubting it, this family is a mess, but so are the situations they've faced. I mean, we can think back through them. Abraham and his wife were unable to have children. Yet God promised them that they would have ancestors who numbered the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Even still, it took a long time for God to make good on that promise. But even still, God moved in their mess. Jacob and his 12 boys, uh, the brothers decided to sell one off and tell dad he was dead, but we saw how God moved in that mess as Joseph became a ruler of Egypt and was able to save the world all because God moved in the mess. Multiple times in the stories, the Israelites are enslaved to other nations, but guess what happens? God shows up and moves in their mess. A virgin named Mary gets pregnant. That's a mess. How do we explain that to our family? How do we explain that to our community? How do we explain that to our soon-to-be spouse? But guess what happened? God showed up in their mess. 
We could go through story after story throughout the scriptures of God showing up in the mess. It's, the, it's all over the place and it's all over the reason for Christmas. That's what we celebrate, that God showed up. Emmanuel, God with us, God showed up and made a way for us to know him. He showed up then, and if we look at our life, and this is the way hindsight normally works, right? We look back at a mess and we see God's fingerprints all over it. In the moment, it just sucks. You try to theologize your way through it and God works all things, God works all things, God works all things, but in the midst of your mess, all you know is this is awful. But time and time again, if you look back on your life, you see that God showed up then and God showed up then and God showed up then. It's another promise that God makes to us. Romans chapter eight, verse 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Any mess we find ourselves in right now, it's an opportunity for God to show up because the scriptures affirm over and over and over again that God moves in the messiness of life. Christmas is a time for us to remember that right now, whatever mess you might be going through as an individual, whatever mess you might be going through as a family, it's an opportunity for God to move. Christmas also gives us an opportunity to look back on the year. You could look back just on 2019 and say, hey, where's the messes and where did I see God move? And if you look for his fingerprints, chances are you'll see them and they'll give you an opportunity to rejoice and glorify God. The second encouragement is this, that God uses real people, not ideal people. Jesus uses real people, not ideal people. All over the scripture, God uses real people, not ideal people to accomplish his purposes. Adam and Eve, are you kidding me? They were tempted by a fruit. Not that ideal. (laughs) Just kind of real people. Abraham came from a family who served pagan gods and out of fear offered his wife to other men on two occasions to save his own neck. Isaac, uh, taking a page from his dad's own book, also offered his wife over to other men to save his own neck. Jacob didn't trust God, but routinely took things into his own hands and became a master manipulator. Joseph was a pretty cocky kid who didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. Moses, the mouthpiece of Israel, but self-admittedly not a very good public speaker. John the Baptist walked around in camel's hair in a leather belt and ate bugs and honey, yet God used him in a mighty, mighty way, and Jesus himself said there's been no one greater that's existed other than Jesus than John the Baptist himself. We look at the disciples, ordinary dudes, not guys of high status or acclaim. They were fishermen, tax collectors, just real people. Paul the apostle, enemy of Christ's follower, enemy of Christ's followers, persecutor of the church, not an ideal person to be used, just a real person to be used. That's what God's looking for, friends. He's not looking for an ideal individual to change the world. He's just looking for a real person with a humble spirit and an open heart to be used by God. So if you're here this morning and maybe you see yourself in the family God wants to use you just like he used these people. He's not looking for ideal people to accomplish his purpose. He's looking for real people. 
Our third encouragement is this. This is who Jesus came from, and it's also an example of who Jesus came for. This is who Jesus came from, and it's an example of who Jesus came for. This isn't just some thing in the distant history. It's not just some list of people that Jesus came from. It's a list of people that Jesus came for. Again, if we look at the list, he came for murderers and manipulators, for patriarchs and prostitutes, kings and cowards, outcasts and outsiders, degenerates and derelicts, the used and the abused. Jesus wants them all. If you find yourself in that category this morning, maybe thinking, not me, I'm too damaged. Or not me, I'm not good enough. He's not looking for that. It's interesting, Jesus had um, several interactions with this group of people called the Pharisees. They were the religious folks of the day and their whole thing was Jesus came for the good people, right? Jesus came for the righteous people because surely someone as righteous as Jesus wouldn't hang around with all the unrighteous and they had this uh, little exchange. Luke chapter five, verse 30 through 32 says this, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christmas gives us an opportunity to remember that God showed up. That God showed up for real people, real people like you and real people like me. He's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for ideal. He's just looking for faithful, humble people that he can love and use for his glory and for our good. Christmas is really just the first piece of what we talk about when we talk about the gospel. It's the good news, right? That God sent his son. That's the, that's the Christmas message, Emmanuel, God with us. It's the birth of Jesus, but the gospel moves on. It says that Jesus grew up, that he lived a perfect life. It's the perfect life that you and I can't live, that he died a excruciating death, a death that you and I deserve to die, to pay the price for sins that you and I should have paid for ourselves. The scriptures say that Jesus took our place, that the exchange, this great exchange that happened, that he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Friends, this is the story of Christmas, that God shows up. That God shows up. He showed up here in the book of Matthew for the first time. And if we look back at our life, we see time and time and time again that God showed up all over the place. I'm gonna ask you to do something. Um, I think Pastor Bob and Pastor Brennan earlier mentioned our Christmas services uh, that are coming up. A wonderful way that you can respond to this morning's service is begin looking for people to invite to come to our Christmas services. I said the same exact thing to first service and someone came to me after first service and said, guess what? I was one of those people. My wife and I got invited to a Christmas service years ago and on that Sunday morning, we met Jesus. They showed up here and God showed up in their life. Would you join us in inviting people here, getting as many people as possible to show up here, not, not for us, not for Highlands, not so we can boast about big numbers or anything like that, so we can boast about our King 
So we can talk about King Jesus, this this God who became a man to save us from our sins because friends, I promise you, people will show up here for a Christmas service and God will show up in a very real way in their life and their eternities will be changed. I'd ask for you to partner with us in that, all for the glory of Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll close and worship. God, thank you for the reminder this morning that you're not looking for ideal people, you're just looking for real people. God, thank you for a picture of your family as dysfunctional as it was. God, thank you for making a way for us to join the family, that through your son Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, we can come into a right relationship with you and have deeper, more meaningful relationships with the people in our lives. God, would we remember you this Christmas season? Would we not get stuck in the festivities of everything, God, but would we be faithful and remember what you did on that first Christmas day, that you showed up in our life? God, we ask that you'd show up again now, that you'd move us, God, that you'd speak to us as we respond to you in worship. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. I want to remind you our prayer team will be down front of the stage this morning. If you've got a mess going on in your life and you'd like to pray with someone and ask God to show up, we would love to be that person to pray with you this morning. My prayer for you is threefold this Christmas. One, that you would remember the purpose of why we celebrate. Two, that you would rest assured God has a plan for your life even in the midst of the mess. And that thirdly, that you would reach out to the people in your life and ask them to come with you to our Christmas services this year. We serve an amazing God, amen? Amen. Let's go love him and love each other. Be blessed, Merry Christmas. See you next week.